Um, some other folks went with the Bob's Burgers. <laughs> <laughs> so I sent those. But then there's one more that I want to send as well. Because our friend Brad in... Wow, that's terrible, Matt. <laughs> that's the absolute worst. That's the best worst thing I've ever seen. I laughed so hard. That's wonderful, terrible. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. I'm savory like bacon this week. So savory. That's really, really awkward. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. And I'm smelly like cheese. Oh wait, no, that's not good. I I got nothing besides that. That's also very awkward. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series, back in my seat of power at last after last week when Matt took that seat from me so that Dana and I could have a debate. All getting excited, it was a lot of fun. Anyway, all of our articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the EDHREC cast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. What's our topic this week, fellas? We're going to talk about our articles instead of someone else's articles like we usually do. Yeah, we like having the guests on a bunch of the other writers from EDHREC. We like showcasing the material that they make for the website because it's really awesome. But one of those writers actually let us know that we don't talk about ourselves enough, which I thought was weird because I love talking about myself and I thought that I did it way too much. But we wanted to take some time to go over the articles that we actually write for the site. I am fully on board with this. I am Particularly as well. after, la- after last week's incident with the inmates running the asylum. Hey, the inmates <laughs> turned power back over to the to the warden. It was fine. Power to the people. Yeah. No, power power to the warden. Joey likes being in charge. Uh, but anyway, it should be a lot of fun. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Matt writes the 60 to 100 article series. Dana writes the series In the Margins and also another one that we'll get into called Superior Numbers. And then I write the Commander Showdown series. And we just think that it would be pretty fun to go over those. But before we get on to that topic... Did you guys play any fun games this week or get any new cards? How has it been since the past week? I actually did some updating to my Miri deck. That's the first deck that I put any updates from Guilds of Ravnica into. So in my old Miri list, I took out Greater Good. Um, one of the reasons that I took it out was because since you have to discard some cards and like not too often are my creatures big enough where I'm netting anything more than like a card, I took that out and I wanted to try out Camaraderie. Uh, so it's that new uh, Selesnia sorcery where you draw cards for every creature you control and you gain life for every creature you control. Um, so I wanted to try that out as a kind of a, a big one-shot draw spell. Took out Loam Dryad because that card just kind of didn't do anything. Um, I had a foil one, so I put it in there. So I figured, why not? And I put in Amara, Soul of the Accord, because I got a pre-release foil. So a foil for a foil. And then I took out Cataclysmic Gear Hulk. The deck doesn't recover very well from board wipes. So that kind of backfires more often than not. So I took that out and I put in Conclave Tribunal, the uh, Convoke O-Ring. Um, that's actually was probably like the all-star for a couple games. So you're just making your deck as Selesnian as possible. 100%. I mean, it's it's what I like to do. Camaraderie, I don't know if it'll stick around, but like 
like I said, like greater good, like if you don't have beefy creatures, it's not the best draw engine. So I'm playing around. Uh, I think I have six draw spells in there right now. Kind of playing around with that number a little bit. That's what I've been trying to find. Because outside Rishkar's expertise, which is the best green card ever. Yeah, I don't really have any like really good efficient draw spells other than like the abundant Sylvan Library combo. But that's two cards and you can't find them that well. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, as long as you're making your decks more Selesnian, I'm making my decks more graveyardy. I just got a bunch of stuff from Return to Ravnica myself as well, and it's all the stuff that puts things in a graveyard. So I'm enjoying Notion Rain and uh, Mnemonic Betrayal, so we can steal more stuff from graveyards. I'm gonna try out Izoni in my Marin of Clan Neltoth deck. Uh, I haven't gotten too much experience with them yet, but I think it should be pretty fun when I do. And you know me, I love graveyards. Dana, how about you? Any new fun stuff? Um, yeah, a little bit. Um, I have a Sagarda Enchantress deck that I kind of hadn't messed with because all the Enchantress stuff that came out with Commander Set and a few of those decks came into the shop as well, and I was I just kind of felt like it got redundant. But having played those decks now for a few months, or against them, I should say, they're so dirtily, at least most of the ones that I've seen, fiddly would be the word Joey would use, which is probably actually more accurate. <laughs> that I kind of decided to take a look at my Sigarda deck again because I that deck never felt fiddly. I do a lot of things with it. It's very it's very active. You know, I draw plenty of cards, but I can also just kill people. Um, and I think that's the biggest problem with all three of those um, Banchantress generals. So I finally got back to updating that deck. I hadn't touched it for a while. So I put Nylee's Colossus in it because it's basically one more win condition. And I realized I hadn't put a Scavenger Grounds in it, so I found a room for that. And Dueling Grounds, which is kind of a, you know, only one creature can attack and one creature can block kind of deal. It's basically what Miri, uh, what I do with does. Um, I hadn't liked that in the deck for a while either, just because I really don't love defensive cards. I'd rather be swinging at somebody than keeping them from swinging at me. So I put a Duelist Heritage in that slot. That's a card I've found myself liking quite a bit lately as well. So I've, I've made a few tweaks to that Enchantress deck. I also went through a couple of my monocolor decks and I put in regular deserts just to give me one more thing to sacrifice to Scavenger Grounds. So I'm going to see how that works out. And Scavenger Grounds, that's the desert that allows you to sacrifice a desert yep. to exile yes. all graveyards? All graveyards. Yeah, that. I, I don't like hearing that you are exiling graveyards more and more. I dislike that. You should stop. I mean, if people didn't try to use their graveyard to win games, I wouldn't have to do it. So like, you can just work around that, Joey, by not using your graveyard. Yeah, you could... That's blasphemy. You could, like, branch out a little bit. I did branch out. I have a group hug deck that I talked about last week, and aside from that, the rest of it's graveyards. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it ha you know, having a second hand is pretty useful in Magic. Yeah. Especially when that hand has all the cards that are dead. Right, you, exactly. It's, it's like 80 cards wide. It's insane. We, I think we can start calling Joey the, uh, the two-trick pony. <laughs> That's, uh, I guess, a compliment, question mark? Anyway, so it's question, question mark dot dot dot. <laughs> anyway, it's it's nice to hear. I guess they're not like, you know, really big, huge updates that we're doing to our decks. But frankly, that's kind of what the commander experience is, is just making minor tweaks here and there over the course of several weeks. You're constantly tuning these decks and they don't all have to be big and splashy to be worthwhile. It's true. It's just all about like incremental fine tuning like I said, like I'm trying to find like the right combination of draw spells for a green-white deck. So just, yeah, playing around with it, experimenting, having fun. If, if it's something I don't like, let's change it. Like That's what the format's all about, whereas, and we'll, we'll probably get to this point here in a little bit, but like with 60-card formats, like it can get a little tighter, but with Commander, like 
you can almost do whatever you want. Interesting segue, Matt. How about we start talking about your series, 60 to 100? What inspired the series? What is the series all about? You mentioned 60 card decks and commander decks. How do you talk about those and combine those and illustrate all of those wonderful points in your article series? Well, you could say as, you know, well, actually we have said several times, but you could say that I'm the the spike of the podcast, the competitive player. Actually, what sparked this conversation was we were kind of talking about how I used to play Primeval Titan back in the early days of playing Commander because I was like, this card's great. Like, why is it banned? And so I, I've always taken the the stance of Enjoy. You and I, I know we've, we've gone back and forth. When I say Primeval Titan died for the sins of Sylvan Primordial, <laughs> maybe is, is a little bit of hyperbole, but I, I love Primeval Titan. Like, I'm just a competitive player. I like winning. So before I really got deep into modern and legacy, especially, I was maybe a little too hardcore, not quite CEDH level, but I, I, I got a little too into commander games. So as I started getting into modern and legacy, it was a really good competitive outlet for me. It was a chance to, to fine tune decks, you know, find the difference between, you know, do I want four or three or whatever of this card, that card, learning a meta game, learning, you know, all about a format. But then I still found, you know, I, I need to kind of step back a little bit. A bunch of my buddies, they play old school casually. They play that format quite a bit. And for me, it was more getting into Commander as kind of an outlet for, let's just have fun. Let's play like a big bounce house type of format, like pre-release. Like I don't have to be serious. I don't have to play super competitively. I don't have to min-max like I, I do in other formats because I've played in GPs. Uh, I think I'm the only writer for EDH Rec that's day two to GP. Um, I have a career pro point, a single career. Nice. Yeah. And, but, you know, I, I really enjoy playing competitively, getting serious about it and being spikier. But for me, Commander was just that, that outlet to take a step back and just enjoy the game a little bit more. Not that I don't enjoy being competitive and playing those, those hardcore formats, but Commander was just a different, different feel for me. And it was, it was very much appreciated. And, it's easier to laugh and have fun, you know, meeting strangers playing commander than it is with some, uh, some competitive players you might come across at, at a new shop. So commander's just been a nice little outlet for me. And, and I wanted to kind of bridge that gap. You know, there's a lot of talk between competitive players and casual players, and there's always a little bit of grinding. So I wanted to kind of just be that, that bridge. You know, if you like playing this competitive deck, Here's a you know casual deck that you can play with your buddies. It still captures the essence of that deck, but yeah, just a way to to go from one format to another because it is overwhelming. We talk all the time about new players being overwhelmed by the card pool and commander. Um, so I wanted to kind of help bridge that gap a little bit too. Yeah, so you'll take decks like, for example, Modern Bogles, and then you'll figure out what a good parallel in the commander format would be. Like, uh, I think you wrote an Estrid boggling bont chantress kind of deck and so that way i did folks who are familiar with the bogles deck in modern can then play this would be a good parallel in commander when transitioning or uh people who are familiar with the Krut clan ironworks combo here's a deck that might be good for them if they're playing that in modern or in legacy or whatever here would be a good uh analogous thing to play in commander that kind of deal right exactly well and you mentioned a good one was my iron my Krut clan ironworks kci deck that actually was probably one of the most fun decks that i've gotten to brew because you know a lot of all that well not a lot all of those artifacts are colorless except for pyrite spell bomb so i had the essence of a deck but i still had to do a little bit of research for myself 
digging through EDHREC, looking at, you know, Kark Clan Ironworks. We've talked about how I like to use the site. I don't go to a commander. I go to a card and look at the commanders that it falls into the 99 of. So I had to kind of get creative. You know, I didn't want to play four-color Brea. That's boring. I wanted to, you know, go off the beaten path a little bit. And I found, you know, some of those new Dominaria legends that were super, super fun, played into the strategy really well. Um, it was basically ended up being a, another copy of Scrap Trawler, essentially. But yeah, so just finding a ways to, or finding different ways to use the site other than what's the best card for my, you know, Miri deck? What's the best card for XYZ? So so how many of these um, decks that you've done, Matt, are ones that you played the 60-card version of? I would say, I so most of my collection, um, especially before I moved to Colorado, I've kind of downsized since then. Most of my collection was either modern or legacy staples. So I had the mana base for pretty much all of modern, except for some like the specialized like affinity lands. So I could go from any given deck in modern for the most part and maybe spend $30, $40 if I wanted to go into a brand new deck. Because that's what most of these formats are, is you have the staples, you have basically your mana base for whatever. A lot of the staples like Bolt, Path, Thought Seize, all those kind of, you know, typical cards. But then you just kind of season it. So I've played, I would say, at least half of the decks, at least half the 60-card decks that I've taken into article form. I've played Eldrazi for a little bit, played like Pyromancer, you know, Mardu, Grindy decks before. Um, I've never played Kark Clan Ironworks, and I was very clear about that in my article because that deck is crazy and there's so many interactions. So I actually just linked uh, Matt Nass, who he's the pro player who kind of started that deck. I linked all of his articles on my article because I'm like, he says a lot of better. But here's a fun deck that does the same thing. It's just I can't tell you all the finer points. So if you like this deck, here's something to, to do. But yeah, it was, I would say at least half, if not more of the decks that I've, I've written off of, minus the standard decks. I don't play a whole lot of standard. I do watch a lot, but I just I don't get out and play enough. So just monetarily, playing standard isn't worth it for me. But I've played a majority of the decks that I've written about. And that kind of goes into the next question I wanted to ask. Do you usually, like when you're porting a deck from a 60-card format to a 100-card format, are you usually taking inspiration from a standard deck or from a modern deck or a legacy deck? Like, Where do you um, usually get your inspiration to make a commander deck out of a 60-card version? Early on, I focused mo- mostly on modern and legacy because that's what I knew the best. Um, I try to sprinkle in some some standard decks that do jump out to me that look super fun, especially right after rotation. Like right now in standard, it's really, really fun because people are playing with a bunch of different things. So lately, I've kind of switched towards more standard and modern. I just try to stick with the popular formats and go with decks people are going to know. Modern is arguably the most popular format in Magic. So going from modern to commander which is also arguably the most popular format it makes it kind of easy just because i'm going with from decks that people know to commanders that people know but yeah i i would say lately it's probably been a decent mix of standard and modern decks for the most part that makes sense what's the weirdest part of transitioning from a deck that you can run four ofs to a deck that you can only run one ofs uh especially combo decks like kci was really hard to do because with four of like they have four Clan Ironworks. They have, you know, it's the namesake card. They they kind of need it. When you're going not just to Commander, where it's a singleton format, but mono white, where you don't have a ton of draw spells, you don't have a ton of uh, card selection. You know, you really had to double down on those tutors, like Enlightened Tutor, Idealic Tutor, finding ways to find other ways to get your key pieces. So I know a lot of people they kind of try to shy away from 
a lot of tutors. I don't mind it just depending on the power level of what you tutor for. So in decks that I, I build, like I might have, you know, demonic tutor, or vampiric tutor, or worldly tutor, but like I like keeping things spicy, especially with commander. Um, I try to keep it a little more casual. So I don't always make the optimal plays. That's just my play style. It's not my deck building style. But when I'm actually playing it, I don't always go for the optimized thing. But with, you know, combo decks especially, it's it's kind of hard to keep the essence without tutors when it comes to the decks that I write about. So it's an interesting challenge. I kind of have to emphasize either selective tutors or a lot of card draw to, to find that. So over the course of prepping these articles and doing the research and doing the work, is there any like card interaction, whatever, that you found that has found its way into your particular gameplay or your particular decks? Uh, or basically, basically, have you learned anything from doing this? Have I learned yeah. anything? Uh, definitely. Man, the, the, there's a lot that I could do with that. That's actually a really good question. I think the most fun thing is like finding finding those substitutes that aren't quite a one-for-one. Like it, We talked about my Moldrotha deck, like going from Eternal Witness to Archaeomancer. Ways just to, to search out similar things, but maybe they're just a toned-down power level a little bit, just because in 60-card formats the power level is so tight. Like there's very little difference in power levels between complete decks. So finding you know, a way to kind of sidestep that power level and you maybe you're downgrading just a little bit, but you need redundancy. You don't have four copies of every card if you wanted to in, in Commander. So you have to find ways to get a similar effect. Maybe it's not quite as efficient. Maybe it's four mana instead of three mana. And that makes, you know, a, a $10 card, a 25 cent card. You know, there's, there's a couple times that I've come across Examples like that. So just finding ways to get a similar effect that I need that aren't maybe like the exact same card or finding ways to copy the card. So yeah, like I said, Eternal Witness to, you know, any other regrowth type of effect is is probably one of the most common ones. Finding card draw in mono white, whether it's, you know, Mentor of the Meek or any card like that. So kind of a weird question, I guess, but which article was the most difficult to write like which deck did you have the most trouble taking from a 60 card format to a 100 uh man i don't know because you're just too good at everything <laughs> well i am i none we of have them were difficult <laughs> several times well I'm, I'm trying to kind of rack my brain here we have established that i am the best player on the podcast ah. we, we established that last week remember yeah completely non-contentious that no not at all <laughs> um i would say it might be Crock Clan Ironworks, the, the deck that I did a couple weeks ago, just because it was, it's a deck that I haven't played myself, so I don't know what's the most vital to the deck. Um, but at the same time, like I I did a lot of research. I watched a ton of videos actually on, on how the deck functions so I could kind of identify, you know, the deck is ready to go off when this happens. So trying to find ways to redundantly, you know, pull out those important pieces um, or at least get to those. Or like I said, finding you know, a redundant piece, maybe not quite as efficient. Maybe it's instead of Kark Clan Ironworks, it's Ashnod's Altar. You can still sacrifice all those creatures, all those art, you know, thopters that we're making, etc. But it's not, you know, necessarily on par with KCI. Yeah, that's probably the most difficult that I've come across so far. So then on the flip side, which one was the most fun to write? Oh, my Miri deck, 100%. Because <laughs> you just love Selesnia. It's it's yeah. What's well, it's green white. It's just what I grew up playing. Like just like little kid aggro. My first standard deck and like deck that really got me like man. I just love this game so much. Was back in Theros block standard. Like Theros had just come out. 
fleece mane lion, witch stalker, unflinching courage, like just green white aggro little kid stuff. Like, it, oh my gosh, that that was super fun. So getting to turn that into my Miri deck that I probably play the most uh, has been a blast and a half to do. Uh, I really like Omnath because a I've been playing Omnath. That's my longest living deck actually that I've had put together. So when I turned that into a scape shift deck, that wasn't too hard either, just because I I was already very familiar with the play style. That's a really cool one. I don't think I'd read that one of yours where you're taking the modern scape shift and turning it into an Omnath deck. That sounds really mm-hmm. deadly. It, it is, and well, and it's fun because like I said, sometimes you go from maybe cards that are a little less efficient but they still get the similar effects. So there's some other ones that are maybe they are redundant, but in some ways they're more powerful. Like that was the Omnath deck is how I discovered perilous forays plus amulet of vigor equals you pull all your basics out of your library and you dome everybody with valicate triggers and all that kind of fun stuff. So yeah, it's, it's really fun finding some of those types of interactions. That sounds, uh, sounds pretty gross. It is pretty gross. Definitely. So in, in doing this, you can definitely do it as an intellectual exercise to a degree. And I'm sure some of the decks you've started making have, have kind of been that way from the get-go. Like, okay, I'm going to do do KCI, but the reality is it's probably not going to be any good. Have any of these wound up really surprising you? Like when you've got to the end result, you've been like, man, this is a legit deck, and I didn't think it was going to be able to be that. Uh, the Corkline Ironworks deck definitely surprised me. I, I wasn't expecting it to be as as fluid at you know and, and consistent once it got set up it actually did its thing fairly well uh it just kind of took a little bit to get going just like i said it is mono white i think the brutoclad i did a brutoclad tokens with a splinter twin package in there so that was that was a little surprising because i i didn't think that the splinter twin would be near as relevant and i had a couple comments in the uh in the article saying why don't you just make a dedicated splinter twin deck and cut all this fluff i'm like well the fluff is actually the, like the fun part for me. I, I like having ways to win. You know, we've always talked about, you know, make sure you can close the game. Make sure just sometimes games have to end. And so this, for me, like a Splinter Twin package or with Muldrotha being able to tutor out a two-card combo, like that's how I like to close the games. But then outside of my win conditions, like that's where I get to have all the fun and find out more about the deck than anything. So I think that's kind of a, a neat bow to put on your article series actually is that Bruticlad example. Folks are looking for the Splinter Twin combo where you go infinite making a bunch of Pestermites with your Splinter Twin interaction or whatever, but you found a commander that captures the essence of that combo just on its own, and that's the point of the series. And that's really cool. Bruticlad is all about making a bunch of similar tokens, and so is Splinter Twin at its core. So it's not about using just that combo that you see in Modern necessarily, it's also about finding a suitable playstyle through other cards too that are accessible in Commander. Yeah, and, and kind of like what you said, finding all those different all those different routes to take a deck. I want people, you know, that, that are trying to transfer from 60 card formats to Commander to make sure they know like this is a place where you can have fun. You can still do those dirty two card combos and and win games. I like doing that. But you but it's a fun format too. There you can do things in Commander that you can't do. So why not take advantage of being able to cast Rishkar's expertise every game. <laughs> why, why wouldn't you? So yeah, just, and that's that's the big thing that I just, I really enjoy about Commander is being able to cast those big splashy things, minus Primeval Titan, that is. 
Uh, uh. Yes, well, I'm, I'm very sorry that Primeval Titan is banned, but I, for one, am glad that it is banned so that you can stop being so so destructive and, and terrible and gross and degenerate. Well, degenerate, we, exactly. We, 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 can, we can be honest about that one. That is pretty <laughs> degenerate. But uh, but yeah, like, I, I just, like I said, you, you can't cast some of these big splashy things in 60 card formats. So if you're going to branch over, take advantage of that. You know, play the the eight drop that you wish was playable in Legacy, but you can't show and tell it, so whatever. But yeah, so that's that's probably the, the biggest thing that I, I would say. If you read my articles, keep that in mind is, yes, we're, we're taking the essence of it. We're taking maybe those win conditions, but we're also having some fun, you know, in the process. And that sounds like a really fun experience to me. So uh, listeners, you should totally go take a listen, take a look at uh, all those 6100 articles because it's pretty cool to see how your favorite decks from modern can be translated into another format. We're going to take a break right now and move on to another segment, and that is Head to Head, where we're going to compare some of the data that we see on EDHREC and see who's the best at guessing about that data. Dana, do you mind starting us off with guessing about the data? I certainly can. So at the top of the show, I mentioned I had a Sigarda Host of Hurons Enchantress deck. And in doing some updates for that deck, I, out of curiosity, went and looked to see how the, the Banchantress decks were doing in terms of populating the EDH rec stats, and then looked at some of the other enchantment commanders. And I thought I would ask you guys if you could guess what the most popular aura slash enchantress deck is on EDH rec. The top three contenders are Daxos, Ural the Miststalker, and Bruno Light of Alabaster. Hmm. So those are the, the top three aura slash enchantress decks on EDH rec. Of what do you think the sequencing from least to most popular on those three is? I think the way that you said them actually it would be my guess. Would that would be the order of least to most from Daxos, and I assume that you're discussing the black white version <clears throat> yes. from Commander 2015. Yep. So the one that gets experience for all of your enchantments. For some reason, he was never quite that popular. But then Ural was really cool. Very, very aggressive that one but i don't think he was as popular as bruna i think she's the one who wins out so that's going to be the order that i suggest it is kind of cool that the enchantments go over like all the colors though with those three top commanders which is just kind of a side note i think that's pretty neat i'm going to guess i think it's going to be Ural the mistalker first i would say i'm trying to think of do you want white or, or do you want blue or black in your Enchantress deck, I think we'll go with Daxos 2 because it's not just auras, it's all enchantments, correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, I'll go Daxos 2 and Bruna 3. So, number 3 is Bruna Light of Alabaster. Yes. Oh, I was wrong. Number 2. Take that, Joseph. Number 2, Yurl the Miststalker. Oh, and number 1, really? Daxos the Returned. I was very Good surprised at that. Um, and he's about a, uh, about 75 decks ahead of Ural, and Ural's about 90 ahead of Bruna. Well, good for Daxos. I like that. I've always really liked Daxos, actually. I think he's more powerful than people give him credit for. So I'm, I'm glad to see that he's doing well, even though he's dead. He's, exactly. He is very dead. Matt, well, he's probably, like, it stinks because, like, of all the experience counters, like, he's probably the most balanced of all yes. of them. He's not terrible, like <laughs> Kalemni, and he's not busted like a couple of other guys. Like, it. Ugh. Yeah, he's just like that, that good, happy balance, but like everybody thinks in extremes, and so everybody forgets about Daxos. Yeah, he's absolutely yeah. a fair card. Matt, what's your head-to-head? So, 
since we've established I love Green White, Selesnia, Mother Mary, I'm going to go with what do you guys think is the top played creature that is not a cat in Miri Weatherlight Duelist decks? Your options are Sun Titan, surprise, surprise, or Eternal Witness, also another surprise. So you might notice those are the top two or the top creatures in their respective colors as well. But if you look at the top cards in all of Mary Weatherlight Duelist, it's a bunch of cats and a bunch of equipment. And I've criticized the the rec page and the, the pre-con effect for Mary Weatherlight Duelist. So we go down and what is the card people add to the deck the most between Eternal Witness and Sun Titan? Hmm. Sun Titan is my tentative guess here just because it's been hard for me personally to get a hold of Eternal Witnesses recently. Yeah, and I, I also feel like there's a – I agree with you, Joey, and I think there's a degree of the ki- the cat deck maybe appeals to somebody who is more interested in the big, splashy play off a of Sun Titan than the efficiency of an Eternal Witness. I don't know if that is right or not. Maybe I'm, I'm, I'm being pigeonholing people that play the kitty cat deck, but it feels like the kind of deck where you want to go with the big, splashy Sun Titan versus – the uh, lower to the ground eternal witness. Yes. Well, sadly, you both are correct. You Ooh. know your green white. <laughs> you know your Selesnia. So, Sun Titan is played in 35% of Miri decks, Eternal Witness, 28%. Uh, it should be noted, though, uh, Sun Titan, it comes in at plus 2% synergy. So, plus 2% above the average deck that could run Sun Titan. Whereas Eternal Witness at 28% of all decks, of all Miri decks, uh, is negative 12% synergy. So, about 40% of green decks on average run Eternal Witness. Only 28 are running Eternal Witness. So, in other words, for people like me where it's tough to figure out exactly what those statistics mean, it's cooler to see Sun Titan than it is to see Eternal Witness in a Miri deck. It is. Gotcha. That's Sometimes that's all the context that we need for all these weird numbers. It's, it's, more, it's more neater, yes. <laughs> all right, I'm going to move on to my head-to-head now, and I'm looking at some cool flip land enchantment kind of dealios from Rivals of Ixalan. So there were some neat multicolored enchantments that flipped into really cool lands, and I want to see if you guys can guess which of the top three was the top most. So we had things like Storm the Vault, that was the Is It enchantment that lets you flip over into a Telerian Academy when you get a bunch of artifacts. There was also Hadana's Climb, which lets you put plus one counters on things and then flips over into this cool Simic land that can buff up one of your creatures and give it flying. And then there's my personal favorite, Journey to Eternity, the Necromancy one, the green-black enchantment that flips over into a land that lets you summon things from your graveyard. Which of those was the most popular from Rivals of Ixalan? I'm going to go with the Golgari one, the Journey to Eternity, because that card is insane. It's really, all three of those are very good, but I feel like Brea's popularity put a lot of Storm the Vaults out there, whereas, I mean, not the Marin isn't really popular, I guess, too, for that particular land, but I, I think Storm the Vaults and Brea is a match made in uh, Artificer Heaven, so I'm going to go with Storm the Vaults. So going into this, Dana, I'd been with you. I had expected that Storm the Vault combined with the new Sahili deck would be just like exploding in popularity. But as it turns out, Hadana's Climb is coming in at third place in 906 decks. Storm the Vault is in 959, putting it in second place. And in twice that many, in 1872 decks, we see Journey to Eternity. 
I was blown away at how much more popular that card is. Yeah. I mean, you, I don't think you should be surprised. We've talked, you know, over and over again about how popular black green is just as the most you know popular guild combination. So I, I, I'm not really terribly surprised. I know is that artifacts got a lot of help, but I, for some reason, I feel like I was looking at those not too long ago and I was really surprised just about the, the numbers differences. Yeah, that's a good point. Like we have discussed that Golgari is the most popular color combination. I guess I'd just been really paying attention so much to the recent products that came out. And so you had the Is It Artifacts deck. And I really expected that Storm the Vault would be such a shoe into all of those decks. Not only that, but also Brea, who's one of the most popular decks of all time. That would have just catapulted it past the uh, the typical guild numbers that we see. But it turns out, no, people like Necromancy, which means people are doing it right. Well, And you know what? That land is probably much more generically useful in almost any Golgari deck, whereas Storm the Vaults probably specifically has to be an artifact deck. So there's probably plenty of people that just crack that land in their rivals packs and like, oh, I've got a Golgari deck at home, and they put it in there, and it's probably good enough. Whereas Storm the Vaults, you need a deck that's specifically doing that thing. Yeah. We'll ignore the fact that you're calling my favorite strategy generic. It is. <laughs> and we'll move on to our next section. I'm very... Very passive-aggressively angry at you. Just kidding. Let's move on now to talk about your articles, though, Dana. So you write the series in the margins. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, sure. So even before I was doing this podcast, I was doing my other show, Commander Central. And when we started doing that show, we were kind of trying to figure out what we wanted to talk about. And one of the things I wanted to talk about early on was there's a lot of cards out there that people run and there are slightly better variants of those cards out there. And I wish people would like realize, you know, you shouldn't be running cancel because there's 15 cards that do what cancel does, the same CMC, and do something else on top of it. The problem is that's not very interesting to talk about for 45 minutes. So why not write about it? Um, and it wound up being a much more interesting topic on the, the written page than it is to actually listen to somebody drone on about. So that's basically the genesis of the series. Yeah, and you've done a ton of different cards that see a ton of play. So you've written about how people shouldn't be playing Cancel. You've written about Manolith. You've written about how they shouldn't be playing Day of Judgment, Fog, Clone, Doomblade, even Explosive Vegetation. You've uh, you've gotten some attention for calling out cards that people really like. Um, yeah, and you know, some of it is hyperbole too. Like I, I, I write in a bit of an over-the-top, style um intentionally so i mean i don't think explosive vegetation shouldn't be in any deck for the most part i mean there's absolutely decks that want to run it cancel maybe not metal maybe not but like a lot of the cards i get it there are absolutely places you want to run day of judgment i just want to talk about the fact that there are alternatives to these popular cards that in a lot of cases maybe not all but in a lot of cases are going to be better and i think just you know looking at some of those cards and like breaking down the specifics about why they're better more often than not is an interesting thing to look into. Right. So the Day of Judgment's a really good example because Matt has actually talked about previously on the podcast how he likes those five mana wraths, things like Fumigate or the Cleansing Nova, the new one, uh, like how you can get extra oomph from your wrath spells and they don't have to be the classic four mana versions. Yeah. I mean, Wrath of God is the perfect comparison because Day of Judgment's just a not as good Wrath of God for the most part. And obviously, you know, those things scale. Like if you're getting something that's a value add at five mana, maybe more at six, even more at seven. At some point, 
the the amount that you get for paying more mana, you know, tails off. It's not always paying more is better. Sometimes you're better with a cleaner, leaner cost. But but it's not always automatic. Like you shouldn't always assume that that one mana fog, for example, is always going to be better than the two mana uh, mist, constant mists. Uh, I would almost always rather pay the extra mana for a constant mist and have the option to buy it back than I would to, to, to cast a fog. Whereas there's probably plenty of decks where I'm content with Wrath and Day of Judgment because of what the deck is doing. But I don't think you want to assume one way or the other. You want to actually take a look at it. And that's a lot of the a lot of the the articles come down to just examining why you're making the choices you're making. So I'm going to try to call you out on something here. Are there any cards that you've written about in the margins that you play yourself? Ooh, um, let's see. Def, uh, Terramorphic Expanse and um, Evolving Wilds I did in an article, and I'm running them in a landfall deck because it's it's a little more casual deck and it's not worth you know buying an Arid Mesa for the landfall trigger. So like for the cost alone, I, I wouldn't run it if I just magically had an Arid Mesa and magically had a Scalding Tarn and or whatever. So like there's an example of one. Um, I think I have Beseech the Queen, which I wrote about in one deck because I don't have an extra Demonic Tutor. Um, I would upgrade that, but I just don't have one. And again, it's a deck that I'm not interested in spending the whatever Demonic Tutor's at now, $40 or something absurd. Um, so yeah, there are absolutely situations where I do it. And I do try to note that um, in the articles that there are reasons. I, I usually do a paragraph somewhere along the line saying, Yes, of course, there are reasons to run these cards. That's usually not good enough for Reddit, where who usually fires <laughs> fires back with twenty five posts explaining why I'm an idiot. Um, but yes, there absolutely are reasons to run them, and, and I myself do it at times. Right. So what I just heard is you're a hypocrite. One hundred percent, absolutely, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, the, I, well, the thing I would say is that the point I made about like knowing why you're doing what you're doing. I, I know why I'm doing it in those cases. Right. And that's what I found particularly edifying about your series. I think the Terramorphic Expanse and Evolving Wilds is a really, really good example. Because until I read that, I'd kind of just been of the typical mindset like, oh, yeah, this is a land that I use for fixing. It's really great. But you can take a look at the page for Evolving Wilds and you'll see that some of the top commanders include something like Marin of Clan Neltoth. Uh, which is a, a two-color deck, or Brago, King Eternal, which is a two-color deck, or Azuric, Law of Progress, which is a two-color deck, and they don't necessarily need to use that. The result is that you'll be getting a tapped land that taps for one of your types of mana. And you know what you could be using instead of that is like a Guildgate, which will get you a tapped land for, that provides for you... For two mana. Either. Right, yeah. Either of the types of mana. So it's sheer force of habit that we tend to be running some of these cards that you're writing about. For and sure. I love that your series talks about those things to say, hey, don't let habit dictate your choices. Yeah, that's the that's the kind of the the crux of the whole thing is just getting people to to think about why they're doing whatever it is they're doing. Right. So now I have to ask the hard hitting questions. Why do you hate fun? Explosive vegetation is cool. Why do you hate my fun? Um, <laughs> it it <laughs> is a cool card, and I, I that is not one I don't think I'm running anymore. But I did run it for a while um, in the past. It's not that I hate fun. It's the opposite. I think it's fun finding those those tweaks. Like that to me is fun is finding that way to make my deck slightly better. And that sounds like maybe I'm talking about that in a spiky level, but I'm really not. Almost all the decks I build have some kind of a baked-in roadblock. So I mentioned my Sigarda deck earlier. That deck has no artifacts in it, and it has no creatures that don't have the word 
aura or enchantment in their rule text. So that's a that's a rule in that deck I've built that I won't break. Oh, it also has no ramp outside of enchantment ramp. So I have three specific rules when I've built that deck that I, that I don't violate at all. But then I don't feel bad about looking really, really closely at the things around those rules and mercilessly tweaking the other facets of that deck because I feel like I, I have these delimiters built in that are going to keep the deck from getting too strong. So what cool things can I find to eke out extra advantage without breaking those rules? So that, that to me then becomes a game, whether it's you know my, my um, Glissa deck where I can only run Death Touch creatures, and I also have no ramp in that deck that isn't artifact-based. So how do I how do I get around those rules in that deck and still make it strong? It, be, it becomes a game within a game for me. All right, and I am of course being facetious when I'm <laughs> saying why do you hate fun? Like there are some really great alternatives that you mentioned in that article, things that can search up forests, for example. So there's not just Sky Shroud Claim. There's also Ranger's Path and Hunting Wilds, and those can help you fix more if you've got some of the lands that have multiple land types. You've got a forest plains or a forest island. And those can help fix your mana even better than the explosive might. And you're also kind of criticizing like that four mana ramp is a really tough spot and our ramp tends to need to be a little bit cheaper too. Right. So, I mean, I did, I did appreciate the article. Why? Thank you. <laughs> so, so Dana, what would you say then is the overarching theme? Like what was the goal of starting that article series? Um, I mentioned the thing about like understanding why you're doing what you're doing. I, I think, to a degree, it was just a way for me to show my thought process and deck building. And that's a really concrete example I can use. So when I build a deck, I, I do a lot of those kinds of thinkings, looking for those little tiny edges. And that specifically saying, okay, here's a couple cards that in these circumstances are almost always better. That's how I look at deck building. So the article series is a way for me to maybe express how I build and how I play through the thing that I write. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I, I could, do you think you could boil it down probably just to say, just be more intentional when you're building your deck? I think so for sure. Yeah. And it's also kind of interesting. You've been, um, I hope this doesn't sound like an insult, but you've been running out of some of those, those options to write about for in the market. Yeah. There have been some, a lot fewer cards to write about. It's just like, Oh, Manolith, there are better options available. You know, some of those obvious choices are starting to disappear on you. So you've moved on to another series called Superior Numbers as well. Which kind of does a similar thing as well, right? So in that series, I'm just looking at, I started off with the very first one looking at Exotic Orchard and say, okay, you know, in the first, I can't remember if I did turn four or turn five or, or it might have even been turn three, how often, you know, dealing out a random deck, I just found decks in EDH Rec. And you can, a lot of times, the, the sites those decks are on, you can kind of deal with a sample hand. So if I deal with a sample hand and draw a few cards off a, off a random deck, if I had Exotic Orchard out, how often would it produce, you know, if it's a two-color deck, both colors, man. How often it produce three colors, whatever. So I try to figure that out statistically using a random deck just to get a, a rough idea. The stats aren't perfect, but I kind of wanted to get a rough idea how often Exotic Orchard in, in the first article series was going to produce the thing I wanted it to produce. So it, it's a very different series than in the margins, but it's still kind of a me series. Like it's a lot of the same thing that I do when I deck build. It's just coming at it from a different angle. 
Yeah, that's a pretty neat one. You walk us through what your basically what your experiment will be and how you're going to be measuring those numbers, what the exact process will be, whether you're going to play this exotic orchard on turn three or turn four in simulated games uh, over and over again and see what percentage of the time you're getting the like as many colors as you would need. And you're just taking that a couple of times to see what these weird kind of cards that you'll look at and you're like, is this actually good enough? Should I be running Exotic Orchard? Will it actually color fix? And you're all answering those weird arbitrary kind of questions. Well, I had a, uh, I was having a conversation about politics with a, with a friend the other day and we were talking about, I can't remember what the subject was, but I, I brought up Pascal's wager. So this is going to be a, a little bit of an aside here, but it, I, I will bring it back around to magic. For those that don't know, Pascal's wager is, a, is an old, basically it's a philosophical if you call it a, a theory or a statement or whatever it is, but it's about whether or not God exists. And in Pascal's wager, he's looking at basically the mathematics behind whether or not you should believe in God. And very simply put, he looks at it and says, okay, you can either choose to believe in God, which is a yes, or you can choose to not believe in God, which is a no. Each of those two choices has a, has a result. You're either right or you're wrong. So if you look at you know choosing to believe in God, well, if you're correct, you get to, again, this is a Christian God, you get to go to heaven. That's a huge upside. If you're wrong, you just missed out on the fun of sin, which, you know, hey, everyone likes to sin a little bit, but the, the downside there isn't really that far down. Um, whereas, look at it the other way, if you choose to not believe in God and you are, you're right, well, then you just got to, again, enjoy sin. But, the, but if you're wrong, the downside is you go to hell. So according to Pascal, the smart wager, the smart choice to make is to believe in God. It has a much higher upside and a much lower downside versus not believing in God, which has a much lower upside and a much higher downside. So I was talking about using Pascal's wager in a lot of decision-making things. I mean, there, there, there's arguments against Pascal's wager and like why it doesn't make sense. It's, it's mostly just an exercise. But as it, it's, there's a great many philosophical problems with it, correct. yes, but, but, but do please connect this to magic. But as a decision-making tree, it makes a lot of sense if you're just looking at things in terms of, do I do this or that? What's the upside or the downside? And I do a lot of that when it comes to like building, building decks, looking at this card versus that card, or what's the upside and the downside if I choose this one or that one. So I was talking about that in terms of politics, and then it, we were talking then a little bit about magic, and my friend's like, oh, your article series makes a lot of sense now that I know how your brain works. <laughs> Just that, that light bulb moment Correct. for your readers. Yeah. But it is. like that. That's something I, you know, I kind of use that thought process when I, when I do make decisions sometimes, and I absolutely apply it to magic cards. So, so whenever we say you know, you're the one that looks for the, the high floor – type of cards that we're not that's where that comes from for sure that's where that comes from well dana i'm glad that you could bring one of the internet's favorite topics religion into our podcast (laughs) i'm sure that won't have any negative repercussions at all i've got one i've got one wrap-up question for you what can we look forward to in future articles either for superior numbers or for the in the margin series i have a couple things i i think my plan moving forward is probably to go back and forth each month do one series one month and go the next month to the next series I'm probably going to be tweaking in the margins slightly just because, like you mentioned, I'm running out of cards like Cancel that have a bunch of really obvious, you know, perfect apples-to-apples comparison cards I can use. For example, right now I'm looking at Pacifism, and I think Pacifism maybe isn't that great, but there's not a lot of cards that are exactly Pacifism I can talk about. So in the article um, that's probably going to come out after this show, but um, 
I don't think I'm spoiling anything. I'm looking at things like maybe Dark Steel Mutation, which isn't really pacifism at all, but it's going to do kind of the same thing and maybe do that thing better. So I, I will probably be doing a lot more of that within the margins, kind of looking at cards that do a similar thing in a similar way versus the, like I said, cancel versus dissipate argument where dissipate's just clearly better and it's a perfect comparison. And the thing I'm looking at probably next in superior numbers is when I was doing the Vidalcan Ori article last month, I was seeing a lot of decks that had way less lands, not way less, but less lands than I thought they should. And when I was trying to deal out hands to see how soon I could cast Vidalcan Ori, there was way more often than I thought I was getting to turn five without having access to four mana to cast Fidelkin Ori. So I want to look a little bit at how many lands people are running in their decks and how many rocks and how often they're going to be able to get to the mana they need. Because at least in the 100 decks I looked at, I was kind of surprised at the amount of mana they were able to put out and onto the field in those first couple turns. All right. Well, it sounds like it should be pretty entertaining, and I'll remind you, your sample size matters. It does, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I was I was going to say, which which uh, big-time content producer are you going to go after next is my next question. He's coming at, oh, that's a question he's, for he's me? He's coming at no, me. No, no, no. At the end of the show, he's coming at me. Yeah, you you went after Josh Lee Kwai with his uh, Vidalcan Orrery. I'm wondering if you're going to go after the Professor's pet card or maybe <laughs> Wedge. Who knows? I think what he's actually going to do, he's going to trick us and go after our favorite cards. He's going to have an article about how Miri isn't very good, for example. Basically, yeah, that that's going to be a really short article because she's. Perfect. I think 2019, I'm just going to be gunning for for cards you two like the entire year. It's it's me picking on you guys. It's a fantastic resolution. Rise of the Dark Realms. Right, exactly. Nobody should be playing that card. How dare you? All right, to stop <laughs> all of this incessant nonsense, let's move on to one more segment. We are going to challenge some stats. There are some cards on EDHREX that have some numbers that we think are a little questionable, so we're going to see some of these cards and say what we think, that they should be seeing either more play or less play. I'm going to start us off this week with the card Mercadia's Downfall. Have either of you heard of this three mana red instant? I have not. Not once. Not once. This card is such a blowout, and I cannot believe that it is only seeing play in 79 decks total on the site. Mercadia's Downfall, that is two and a red for an instant that says attacking creatures get plus X plus zero until end of turn, where X is the number of non-basic lands defending player controls. This card is bonkers good, and yet it only sees play in 79 decks. Do you know who runs non-basic lands? Literally every commander player no deck exists that does not have some number of non-basic lands. And the number of non-basic lands, especially in decks that have three or even two or four colors, the, like all of their lands are going to be non-basics. This can give your army like plus seven plus oh pretty easily. So if you're running a deck like Edgar Markov that has a ton of little one ones on the ground, this will be a huge instant speed boost and only for three mana. I think it's absolutely criminal that this only sees play in 79 decks total. It's so good. Yeah, 79 is kind of yeah, surprising. Yes, yeah, yeah, being double digits alone is is kind of weird, but yeah, I, I think after, you know, if you're playing, you know, with a group hug player who plays, you know, four colors, uh, it's going to be a pretty good big blowout. You know, you're going to thank them quite a bit for giving you all those card draws to find it. 
Can't help but feel like you're throwing a little bit of shade at the group hug arguments I was making. What? The, no, the, never. The last podcast. My point is, this is a really great aggressive card that I don't think sees nearly enough play. So if you've got a deck that likes to go wide with a bunch of tokens, this is a really cool option that folks definitely won't see coming. Matt, what is your challenge of stats? So my challenge of stats, I'm going to go two weeks in a row where I talk about a uh, card that I discovered for my Niv-Mizzet deck. Polymorphous Jest is a instant for one in blue-blue. And it reads, until end of turn, each creature target player controls, loses all abilities, and becomes a blue frog with base power and toughness of 1-1. So, when you turn all those creatures into 1-1s, you can then draw a card and deal one damage with Niv-Mizzet, the new one that I've been playing quite a bit, and basically mow down their entire army, which is super, super great. Or even better if you draw into it, say you brainstorm, you deal one damage to three different creatures, you draw this later, then you use it. Uh, They still have that one damage mark to them, so it's still going to kill them. Currently, Polymorphous Jest is only played in 3,117 decks, and I think that is very, very low, considering there are now three different versions of Niv-Mizzet, all of which should do pretty much the same thing, just different variants of it. Uh, It's a great way just to get rid of all the creatures out there uh, we were talking about this before the cast, and Dana brought up a really good one. Sudden Spoiling is just an amazing card, and turn, you know, Polymorphous Jess isn't quite that Sudden Spoiling, just because like a split second makes him a 1-1 instead of you know a zero power creature. But still being able to, especially when you combine it with Niv-Mizzet, destroy them, turn it into a one-sided board wipe, it is incredible. And I think it should be played in a few more decks, especially with Niv-Mizzet being a new you know legendary creature out with Guilds of Ravnica. And it do, it just does so many different things too. Like it, it will clear the board of flyers when you need to swing in with your flyers, or it will make those big beaters swinging at you into small creatures that you can block with your small creatures and kill them off. Or you know you can kind of use it as a fog effect when someone's making an alpha strike, assuming they're not equipped or are wearing plus one counters. Or you can use it to you know somebody has an Avacyn out and they go to board wipe. You can use it in response to make sure the board wipe kills all their stuff too. Like, it does so many different things, almost all of which are useful, that it's never a dead card in your hand. Yeah, yeah so it's, it's just the sudden spoiling is seeing play in 8,435. That's like almost three times as much as Polymorphous Jests. And if people think the sudden spoiling is good, then they should be running Polymorphous Jests in their blue decks too. It's way, way better than it looks. I've been running this one for years in my Crewfix deck, and every time that I play it, it's just such good versatility. I feel so safe when I have it in my hand. When it got reprinted in the uh, Commander 2017 Wizard deck, I was so happy to see it because it's such a secret blowout that no one sees coming. I love those three mana yeah. instants. Yeah. Well, and like Dana said, it's one of those, like, it's almost like a modal spell that doesn't say it has modes, but it really does. You just have to play it differently. It's kind of like a, uh, you know, Boros Charm or what was it? Heroic Intervention. That's the one where you can, you know, has, you know, very different modes. You can save your army. You can you know, stop a removal spell, stuff like that. You know, Polymorphous just is along those lines of it's it's a modal spell that doesn't say it has different modes. Yeah, it's a fog or it's a combo stopper or sometimes a weird, like almost like a counter spell. Like, yeah, there's a ton of uses for it. So I really like that pick. Last up is Dana. What's your challenge to stats? I'm going to stay on theme with talking about Enchantress decks. Mention a card in only 1,400 decks in EDH rec, and that's Flickering Ward. Um, do you guys know what this card is? I do. I do. So it's it's one white. So it's sorry, a single white, 
And when you play Flickering Ward, choose a color. Enchanted Creature gains protection from the chosen color. Um, so that's not bad in and of itself. Particularly if you can put it on your Ural or your Sagarda. Uh, very often you're going to be able to pick a color that will allow you to swing through on at least one, but pretty frequently two people so they can't block. So that helps tremendously. However, the golden part of this card is it also says one mana return flickering ward to its owner's hand. So number one, you can reset that color if you need to. However, the most important part of that is an enchantress deck where you draw a card for playing an enchantment, it winds up being two mana to draw a card if you have one enchantress out. But if you've got two, it's two mana to draw two cards. And if you have three, it's two mana to draw three cards. It's a ridiculously effective mana sink in decks that, you know, oftentimes are running things like Nykthos or Sarasanctum where they can make a huge amount of mana per turn. And you can refill your hand above and beyond so easily with Flickering Ward. And you can get a ton of experience counters if you're playing Daxos. Yeah. And, and it's just a useful card. Like There's a couple different variants on this. There's a green one that I I think lets the, you gen, regenerate the creature maybe or give it plus. I forget what it does. But the ability on it's not quite as useful. Flickering Ward's ability is genuinely something that comes up quite a bit. Like it, It's what's gotten my cigar to, to swing through too many times to, to count in addition to just being a great jaw engine. So yeah, in it should be in almost any Enchantress deck, I think. I think all those decks are actually popper decks that have been playing it for a while. Yeah, it's probably really strong there it's for a, sure. It, yeah, it's it. I've only played like 15 games of popper, but it was definitely a powerhouse there. Yeah, that's a really cool card. And it's another one that folks probably just don't know about. So it definitely deserves a, a lot more visibility. It's really powerful. We're going to end now by criticizing my articles. I mean, uh, talking about my articles, the Commander Showdown series. We're, we're going to do Joey's favorite thing and talk about Joey. <laughs> hey, that's only partly true. My preferred thing is to talk about necromancy. That's that's fair. So since you do the Commander versus articles, as I have recently dubbed them, apparently, <laughs> uh, what... What is just kind of the gist of your articles then? Give us the quick rundown. Yeah, Commander Versus is the title that I wanted to pick, but the Commander Versus guys have gameplay videos. <laughs> so they kind of took that title and I was like, you know what? That's fair. They're doing awesome stuff. So I went with the title Commander Showdown. But effectively what it is, I'm taking one commander versus another. If you play enough EDH, you'll see a lot of commanders that have very similar abilities. And this can make building a new deck really confusing sometimes. Like if you like life gain, should you be building Karlov of the Ghost Council or Oloro Aegis Ascetic or Isle Eternal Pilgrim? If you, or if you like a blink effect, should you be choosing Rune of the Hidden Realm or Brago King Eternal? Both of those commanders like to blink, blink, blink things, but like how do they do it? What do they do? And even when you do pick a commander, figuring out the specific card choices that like make it differ from its other counterpart when they're kind of parallel that can be really tough. So I wanted to start this series to help folks with that decision. When they're looking to build a new deck, but there are a couple of different commanders that you could choose, then I wanted to give some context for those commanders and hopefully use the EDH rec data to help support some of the conclusions about how their strategies differ, not just their card choices. Well, one thing I like about your series, Joey, is that it's it's very evergreen. Like You mentioned how there aren't as many you know perfect cancel manolith type cards for me and my series, and at some point, the amount of really 
iconic, identifiable decks that Matt can turn into a 100-card EDH deck kind of runs out. But with your series, there's always new commanders being printed. And not only are there new commanders, that then gives you maybe a logical pairing with an old commander for you to talk about. Mm -hmm. So you constantly have new material every time something comes out. And so that that's fresh and it gives you something new to look at and maybe a new angle to approach too. I really like that about your series in that every time, every month, it's something that is genuinely useful. Well, thank you so much. But you're right. They do like Wizards likes to tread around some of the same ground. So they had Maelstrom Wanderer that came out a long time ago. And then Yidris Maelstrom Wielder came out. These are both commanders that deal with Cascade. But now we've got a newcomer. How does he compare to the old Cascade stuff? And as it turns out, he differs quite a lot. And that's something that I wanted to explore. So which which commander showdown, excuse me. uh, (laughs) You keep wanting to say versus. I do. Well, just because the images that you put up there, it's always the somebody versus somebody else. So (laughs) you're asking for it, really. But yeah, my question would be, what has been the most fun commanders to pit against each other and break down and and nitpick against each other? That is a tough question. Is it necromancy related? How about yes or no there? I am a little biased. I really enjoyed writing about Titania versus the Gitrog monster, but that's just because I love lands, I love death, and I love land death. Probably the most fun were actually the very first couple that I wrote. I started with Tristani versus Reese the Redeemed, and then I also wrote uh, Yidris versus Maelstrom Wanderer, and there was also Rune versus Brago. I think Rune versus Brago might be one of the uh, the more fun ones that I had, just because... So, for example, one of the things that I like doing in the articles every so often is I'll do a kind of a Venn diagram. I'll take a look at the top and signature cards for those commanders, and I'll see if there's any overlap between the EDH rec pages. So I took a look at Brago and Rune, and I wanted to see which top and signature cards they had in common. And when you start looking at the data that way, you can start to see the way that their differences are are more pronounced and you can see all of the creatures tend to be on rune side and all of the non-creatures tend to be on brago side which seems probably pretty obvious just looking at them brago can blink anything rune can blink only creatures but it also looking at those you get a better sense of how their strategy will play out as well you know seeing that rune has more creatures well which non-creatures does he have that brago doesn't have for example and which creatures does brago have that rune isn't using and that'll also help pick apart the specifics like there that you can see so just i like rearranging the data and i think rune and brago was probably one of the more fun ones maybe it's a a bias just because it was one of the first ones that i wrote but that's where i can remember having the most fun with the data and arranging it in a way that was a little bit more intuitive than just looking at a bunch of percentages on the regular pages Uh, in doing these comparisons are there any of the commanders that really shattered your preconceived notions like you were coming in thinking You know, this is a logical comparison, but obviously Commander A is better than Commander B. Are there any ones where after doing the article series, you've been like, wow, I I was kind of genuinely shocked by that. And you've changed your mind. So the answer is probably yes, but I'm struggling to think right now. I'm also cheating a little bit. I am going through some of my my old ones, uh, some of the old ones that I've done. I think uh, an example that comes to mind... It was uh, Vona versus Eile versus Karlov was an article that I did. Uh, so Vona came out in Ixalan, and that was another black-white commander that plays around with life gain a lot. Um, so I decided to compare it to Karlov, who we know 
gets a bunch of plus one counters whenever you gain life, and then Eile, who lets you control the board and destroy things the more life that you have. And Vona seemed to be along that same line as well, where it's letting you pay life to destroy things, so it seemed like a good parallel to the Karlov and the Eile example. But as I was writing that one, it turned out the deck that I kept coming to wasn't a life gain deck at all. It was actually a life loss deck. I was taking advantage not of Vona's ability, like me having a ton of life so that I could pay more and then destroy stuff with her ability. I actually wanted to pay my life and use my low life as a resource and then switch it with other people with things like Axis of Mortality. Um, so that was kind of different. I had a, a notion of Vona when it came out that it was just a worse version of Karlov and Eile, who were really good at life gain and Orzov. And it turns out that Vona was actually something completely different. She was something more like Selenia Dark Angel. I think that's probably the, the best example that I can think of of a commander that kind of surprised me. And I really liked what I found. It was a very different version of, of playing with life in that way. So what de- what article have you written in your showdown series that was the most difficult for you to, to kind of draw any valid and well thought out conclusions from. I know you do a lot of digging and a lot of analysis getting to that point, but what was the most hard one to, to get something concrete out of it? Um, probably I has, I struggled a lot with Ramos versus Joda. Uh, they're both five color commanders that, you know, love doing five color stuff, but they both kind of cheat mana costs in a pretty similar way. I think also Marisil versus Experiment Courage was also a very difficult one because I'm not a very combo-minded person. So I decided to take a look at Marisil, who loves collecting activated abilities, and Experiment Courage, who loves collecting activated abilities. But they both do it in really different ways. But their main goal is effectively similar. They're both trying to you know, go infinite with a bunch of different weird activated abilities. And so it just became very... I guess I'll use that word that Dana acknowledged earlier. They were very fiddly in the same manner. Um, So those were a little tougher to parse as well. Sometimes the commanders are, in fact, so similar that there's not a ton to be gleaned from them. Well, that sounds like I'm I'm letting myself down with (laughs) with those conclusions. I I don't think that's the case. Sometimes it's nice to see that commanders are a lot more similar than maybe they appear, which is a fun conclusion to find. But other times it's also just acknowledging that like I, a lot of these commanders I have not actually myself played with. So I go and research as much as I can. I analyze that data as much as I can to see what those differences are. And if I find no differences, sometimes that is also a really fun journey too. Sometimes I, I do come at this with the expectation that things are going to be crazy different just based off of all of the previous articles that I've done. But to see similarities is actually kind of neat sometimes. And it's nice to know that if you pick the quote, wrong commander for the deck that you're trying to build, you're not going to be blown out by that. You can have fun and experiment. So we talked a little bit about um, how, you know, Matt, being a competitive player, decided to to build this series as a kind of a reflection of him as a deck builder and EDH player. And I explained a little bit about how my series kind of is a reflection of my thought process as well. What do you think, Joey, this series says about you as a player and deck builder? I am... A, a human version of scales, <laughs> I guess. Um, every time that a nude card comes out, I'm constantly comparing it to the pre-established stuff, the things that we've seen before. When Elvis Rejuvenator came out, for example, that was a three-mana one-one that maybe could find a land for you off the top of your deck, I couldn't help but compare it to Farhaven Elf and Wood Elves. And in fact, when I look at the data on EDH Rec, I look at Wood Elves and see that it's more popular than Farhaven Elf in this deck or vice versa in another. And I'm like, why is this the case? They should be of equal popularity because they're basically the same. And so 
like my my mind is constantly like weighing things. What are those differences? So whenever a new commander comes out, my mind does the same thing there. I'm like, oh, a new Lazav is out. Well, how does it compare to the old Lazav? That's my main frame of reference. I have to figure out how it fits. And so I like exploring into those new cards to see how they fit with the stuff that we already think, because sometimes they'll surprise you. So yeah, that's it's definitely like this is definitely how my brain works. Whenever we get something new, I can't help but compare it to the other stuff. That all makes sense to me to the point where I don't know what to say to that or beyond that. Cause I, yeah. I like that answer. Yeah. You, you really just covered everything that we probably had cooking up to, to ask and you answered it all before we had a chance to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry that I'm a really great interviewee. And yeah. we're proud of you. Oh, thank you so much. And it's also, <laughs> so one other kind of fun thing that I've implemented uh, is that folks get to vote at the end of the articles uh, for which Commander Showdown they'd like to see afterwards. So that's been kind of neat to to share as well. You know, there's a, a new ninja commander. How does she compare to the commander that other folks were using as a ninja commander? So you've got Yuriko versus Vela, for example, could be an option. Or would people like to see Muldrotha the Gravetide versus Tassigur the Golden Fang? Um, or would they like to see a Niv-Mizzet duel, for example? So that's that's been kind of fun, too. It's nice to see. Because sometimes the things that people vote for are not the things that I expect them to vote for. So it, it's neat to see other people take the journey, too. It's nice to see that you're a writer for the people. You know, you're really joining in on that club. And, yeah, it's good to see. Well, Joey, what do you say we... Uh, we pack the bags and hit the road how about that i think that sounds like a great idea it's been a lot of fun talking about our series and listeners i hope that you are also our readers and that you check out the different things that we're writing about because you know they're pretty fun maybe dana will criticize your favorite card maybe matt will take your favorite modern deck and turn it into a commander deck and maybe i'll be there to help you figure out which commander you should choose for that deck too so it's definitely a a a really fun journey i think But with that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-host so much for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with you, where can they find you all? You can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And you can find me on the Twitter bird at Dana Roach. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenneth Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. You can follow EDH Rec and the EDH Rec cast on Facebook and Twitter. We're doing a giveaway when EDH Rec gets 5,000 likes and when the cast gets 1,000 followers on Twitter. So head on over there to smash those like buttons for a chance at a cool prize. You can also contact us at edhreccast at gmail.com and find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast too. This podcast is posted every week on EDH Rec's community content spotlight section where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers including us. We'll be back action next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Yeah, I've got I've got maybe 100% of my friends I'm going to be showing that to. <laughs> You're welcome. See, you, you acted like you tried to act so offended. <laughs> That's so terrible. <laughs>